we are continuing to look at Paul's defense of the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the middle of this wonderful chapter, Paul appeals to baptism and to his own personal brushes with danger and death. And these examples that he gives are punctuated with rhetorical questions that show that these things would be absolutely meaningless if there were no resurrection. You remember last week we talked about how baptism pictures resurrection. And so if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to participate or celebrate or practice the sacrament of baptism. And then, of course, all suffering experienced by Christians would be meaningless because we're doing it for nothing. Uh, and that's what we focused on last Sunday, and that was in uh, chapter 15, verses 29 to 32. We discovered two additional consequences if there were no resurrection, and firstly, it'd be baptism would be nothing, a false sacrament, and then obviously, secondly, suffering and even dying for Christ would be of no value. That was the focus, that was the emphasis, that was dis the discussion last Sunday. And this morning we're going to deal with the third and fourth points and then wrap up this small section. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This time we're looking at verses 33 to 34. 33 to 34, just two simple verses that are loaded. Let's pray for God's help before we get to work. Lord, we humble ourselves once again here. It takes a level of humility to sing to you and to do a call to worship and even some, I guess, announcements, but we really need to humble ourselves now as we sit under the authority of your word, not under my authority, but under the authority of your word, and your word is our authority. And So, Lord, we, we pray that you teach us today from your word and uh, help us to understand these next two verses, they're very critical, um, very important for Christians to, to understand and to apply and to obey. And uh, so we just uh, acknowledge our weakness, simultaneously acknowledge your strength and your power in the spirit and ask that your spirit move in our hearts. Help us, Lord, today. And uh, we thank you that you are a loving and helpful God who will help us in every situation. And so we commit this time to you and pray that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday, get right to work here. That third point, remember we're in a little mini-series here, and the third point is this. Third thing Paul does is he warns the Corinthians about the deception and ruinous effects of bad company. And we see this, of course, in verse 33. And he says it very simply, and this is a verse that we're all very well aware of, most of us are, and sometimes we even think that it's some kind of a proverb or something because it certainly sounds like one. But he says, next thing he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's what he says next. This is actually Paul's third warning 
concerning deception in the epistle. The first and second warnings appear in chapter 3, verse 18, and in chapter 6, verse 9. So it's, it would be um, right and consistent to say that one of the concerns that Paul had for this small church, the church at Corinth, was that they could be or were, were being deceived by various people or what have you. Three times this warning is given. And, and this time, the focus, the warning pertains to the company that these believers were keeping, the relationships that these believers had. That's the emphasis here. And um, there are, just so we know why he would even issue this warning, there are people inside and outside the visible church, the church that we see when we come to church like this, and we see this is the visible church. Within this visible church, there is the true church. There are real believers here, but think visible. It's the building that people go to and gather. There are people inside the visible church. There are people outside that don't go to church at all, outside the visible church, that do not hold right orthodoxy, that's proper beliefs, proper biblical beliefs, and or they do not hold or practice right orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means proper living. So there is such a thing as bad company inside and outside the church. And what it tends to do is not have right beliefs or right living or a combination of both. And this is what Paul is referring to here. Maybe in modern tongue, we would say there are bad actors inside the church and outside the church that have bad beliefs, bad practice, what have you. There's also good actors. And what's interesting about this phrase, if you notice, bad company ruins good morals, and of course, it's expressed in a number of ways in various English translations. Um, what's interesting about it is that it is not a verse in scripture even though it seems like a proverb or something like that. But it is in quotations. Do you notice that? Paul is quoting something. And he appears to be borrowing from a well-known Athenian dramatist here. That would have been somebody who writes plays. They didn't have movies back then, but they had plays. And that was the form of entertainment, one of the forms of entertainment, besides people cutting each other up in the Colosseum in battle with the gladiators. They had various types of drama and plays. And it looks like Paul is borrowing from a pretty well-known dramatist. And his name was Menander. And he was around in 342 to, nine, uh, to 292 BC. So hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul ever lived, you had a guy that wrote plays or in poems and all these things, Greek background, and he wrote these things. And it seems like Paul is citing him here. This guy, Menander, was hailed as the supreme poet of Greek new comedy by his critics, the critics that lived in his day. In one of his plays, Menander describes the deceitful behavior of a beautiful <coughs> goddess-like harlot says, she does you wrongs, she locks her door, keeps asking you for gifts, she loves none, 
but ever makes pretense, communion with the bad corrupts good character. There's the statement. Coming right out of Menander's play or poem. Paul appears to be borrowing this phrase. I think that's what he's doing, and that's the consensus. And then he takes it, he borrows it from Menander hundreds of years earlier in some kind of play about a harlot. He takes it and then he applies it to the deceptive and dangerous people that he's going to describe or begins to describe here, those who are in the church or outside of the church that have bad beliefs and bad practice. So he's borrowing from the from the play to make this point about people that are inside and outside the church that are deceptive and that we need to be mindful and careful with. He says, such people, this bad company, such individuals have the ability to ruin those who have good morals or those who have right orthodoxy, proper beliefs, or those who have right orthopraxy proper Christian living. This is what he's saying here. Back in chapter 5 of the same epistle, we did encounter a type of bad company in this church. The young man who committed sexual immorality, it looks like, with his father's wife or his stepmother. 1 Corinthians 5.1, this was a young man who was living in sexual immorality within the church. And that was the example that he was setting for others. He's obviously bad company. He was in his sexual immorality, corrupting others with it, in a sense. After exposing the unrepentant, and by the way, in that text, remember, it says that there's something, Paul says there's something happening in your church that even unbeliever, pagans don't do. That's how extreme this sin was. I mean, it's pretty serious to be sleeping around with family members even if they're step. After exposing the unrepentant person, this young man, Paul exhorts the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people who bear the name of brother, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 11. So he exhorts them and encourages them and says, you shouldn't have anything to do with a person like this who professes to be a Christian and yet commits this kind of sexual immorality and seemingly won't repent of it or do anything about it. That's not somebody you should associate with. Why? Because that is bad company. That's not somebody you want in your life. That's not somebody you want in your church. Mainly why you need to distance yourself from such people is because they can deceive other believers into thinking that that behavior is suitable, that that behavior is permissible, that it's okay if I do this because I have the grace of God. And, and this is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian churches. Is that who Paul's referring to now in chapter 15? I don't think so. But the young man was bad company nonetheless. And this was happening in the Corinthian church. And instead of being grieved by that young man's sin, some were giving approval. 1 Corinthians 5.2, which shows the corrupting power of the young man. That somehow he was justifying what he's doing. And there were plenty of believers there to say, I don't think it's such a bad deal. So you can see how bad company can corrupt good morals. 
You might have had people that disagreed with what he was doing at first, but over time they became desensitized to it and then started to justify it and say it's not really that big of a deal. That's how that corrupting, that's how that poison works. You're exposed to someone like that and over time it can corrupt your morality and your views and your beliefs. That's the warning here. That's the concern. Now Paul does not specify in verse 33 exactly who's doing what here, but I think that we can presume based on the context that he was referring to those who were denying the resurrection of the dead and more particularly the resurrection of believers, right? This entire chapter, chapter 15, is about the resurrection. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about the resurrection of all who are in him, believers. That's the doctrine that was being denied at this point in this church. And so I think that since Paul doesn't list who the, what this, you know, he just says the bad company, he's generalizing it, can corrupt good morals, but he doesn't identify if it had to do with them poisoning their views of resurrection or whatever. But I think that it's safe to assume that's what he's referring to. In other words, this deceitful bad company that the Corinthians were connected to was introducing bad doctrine and bad theology into this church. I think that's the meaning. Of course, chapter 5, you have somebody who professes Christ who's trying to introduce bad living, sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word for company is humilia. Garland says it refers to quote, those who engage in social intercourse, end quote. Well, who was it that we've been discussing and focusing on since the beginning of this study who focused on social intercourse or social teaching, like teaching in a social environment and proclaiming their beliefs and their system of beliefs and all that? Who would, have that, who would that be? What comes to mind? Who was down the street preaching their own messages that the Corinthians were exposing themselves to, the local philosophers, right? The Greek philosophers. The Greeks were big on philosophy. I think they kind of developed it. It is the local philosophers that were engaging in social intercourse. So the bad company that was deceiving believers in this church and ruining the doctrines in this church were the local philosophers. That's who's in mind. The, the rejection of the believer's resurrection is the result of the local philosophers contradicting that and refuting that and rejecting that. They were, in a sense, chiseling away at this church's orthodoxy, and this led to a diminished orthopraxy. Right doctrine produces right living. Wrong doctrine produces what? wrong living, right? If the doctrine goes, the purity goes, the orthopraxy goes. We essentially do what we believe. We do what we understand. And so when you introduce wrong orthodoxy into the church, wrong beliefs over time leads to wrong orthopraxy. Bad living, unchristian living, unbiblical living. Resurrection is right doctrine. Amen? 
and it is that the, the twisting and ultimate removal of, of that kind of doctrine that leads to some funky, crazy living. Um, commentarian by the name of Barrett said, take away the resurrection and moral standards collapse. You just stop and think about it. We believe in the doctrine and reality of resurrection. Our Lord rose on the third day. We call it Easter's when we celebrate it. And it's because he rose that we will rise and we have our hope fixed in our rising when he returns. And that helps us with our morality because we know he's coming back and he's going to raise us. And so we want to live for him now based on that hope, right? You take away the resurrection, you essentially have nothing to live for. So Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If our belief system is false, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time right now. I'm wasting my breath. So if you take away resurrection, good doctrine, good orthodoxy, it results in bad orthopraxy, bad living. That's what Barrett is saying. That's what Paul is saying. The Corinthians were foolishly double-dipping. You think of somebody at the snack table and they keep dipping their chip and it's like, well, there goes that batch of salsa. What the heck are you doing? You get one dip, dip. Right? You don't keep doing this. And they were double-dipping in a way. They were sitting under the teachings of, of the apostles and other qualified men like Apollos, and that was great, right? We learned about that in chapter 1, and it got kind of weird because they started saying things like, well, I follow this guy and I follow that guy. They started competing with one another, which isn't right. But it, it, certain times during the week or during the month or whenever, they were sitting under good, sound teachers. That's one type of dip. But they were also sitting under the teachings of the local philosophers who were dangerous. There's the double dipping. They were getting teaching in the church and they were getting teaching at the town center, at the agora, at the Areopagus, wherever these teachings were being done by the philosophers. And they usually did it out in the open air. And people would gather around them and listen to them unpack their beliefs. You know, and sometimes they said things that made a lot of sense. If they didn't, then I don't think Paul would have quoted them at times, but sometimes they were just teaching rank ridiculousness. But they were dangerous nonetheless. You know, if you're sitting under good teaching in the church, you don't have to go out and let me, let me just get a taste of what this is like and go put yourself under false teaching. There's no reason to do that. It's too dangerous. We're too weak in our flesh. We tend to believe things we ought not believe. We tend to do things we ought not do. Is there isn't there enough bad influence in this world? Why would I willfully go down and place myself under that? And that's exactly what they were doing. They were double dipping. Good teaching here, bad teaching here. Let's put it together. We end up with what? Something really weird. Good and bad. The good, bad, and the ugly. And it was this association with the local philosophers, that bad company, that had corrupted their orthodoxy, right beliefs, which eventually began to ruin their orthopraxy, right, living. At one point, MacArthur said, and this was early on in his commentary, back in probably chapter 3, and it just came to mind as I was writing this message, he had said something to the effect that the Corinthians' moral indiscretions, all their 
problems and all their sin issues and all the things that they were doing, whether it be the sexual immorality or the, the, the jacking up of communion. I mean, they were, this is a church that got almost everything wrong. And he says the reason for that, you can trace back all of those indiscretions, all of those sins, you can trace it back to the distorted doctrines they either failed to leave behind once they were saved or that they had adopted along the way. Why is that? Because bad doctrine leads to bad living. Especially when you think of Greek philosophy, which really has the attitude of life is short, there's nothing to look forward to, do whatever you want. That's a doctrine, believe it or not. Now, how are you going to live and if that's the doctrine you believe? You're going to do as it says, do whatever you want. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is what he said in the previous verse. What Paul is saying is that bad company is dangerous. It can be dangerous. It is dangerous. And this is why it's incredibly important for believers to choose their company wisely. Right? The same church was told not to yoke. Imagine back then when they did farming, you have two oxen. One oxen could do a lot of work, but two could do more. And they would take this wooden bar and join them together. That's a yoke. Picture that in your mind. And that's the illustration he uses. He says, to the same church, do not yoke with unbelievers. He says this in the next epistle, by the way, 2 Corinthians 6.14a. Yoke means to partner with. It can refer to a business partnership. It can refer to a marital partnership because that's what marriage is. It can refer to friendships because those are, in a sense, partnerships. It can even refer to fellowship, joining together with people in partnership over a set of beliefs or something that's shared in value. In the exact same passage, Paul asks... He says, do not yoke yourself with unbelievers. And then he says, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? So what he's doing is in the same passage, he's beginning to explain why you shouldn't yoke yourself as a believer with unbelievers. And the first illustration he gives is that, well, you have righteous people made righteous by Christ and you have you have wicked people who are of the world. What do these two groups of people, these two ideas, have in common? 2 Corinthians 6.14b, the answer is they have nothing in common. In fact, they are diametrically opposed. Righteousness is opposed to wickedness and vice versa. Righteousness hates wickedness. Wickedness despises righteousness. Again, he says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14c. The answer is there can be no fellowship between them because darkness hates light and light exposes darkness. John 3.20, Ephesians 5.11. Spurgeon once said, no person is so much a foreigner to his fellow men as a man born from above. The Christian is a person of Christ's righteousness. They are a, a person that has been born from above. They are a, 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 a person that, there's just, they, they, they're a person of light. They walk in the light of truth, the light of Christ. 
They are the light of the world. How can, Paul's point, how can they possibly have such close partnership and associations with those who don't have any of that, who don't practice any of that? Maybe you could put it like this. Christians have a particular worldview. Unbelievers have a particular worldview. Good luck having great partnerships with those who are completely opposite to your set of views. How can you do that? And, and any of us know that have had relationship with unbelievers, and I think most of us do. It's not an easy thing at times. It's not that we're opposing people. I think that we need to reach people with the gospel, but I do oppose their beliefs when their beliefs aren't biblical. And I don't make a show of that or try to inflict harm on them. I just don't believe what they believe, and they don't believe what I believe. And these are core issues, so it makes it really, really difficult to get along. Can you imagine a close partnership with someone who sees things so vastly different from you? How do you conduct business with that person? He's perfectly fine with ripping people off. And you're like, we cannot do that. This is unethical. So he wants to spend his time taking advantage of people, where you want to spend your time honoring the Lord and giving people the best deal and everything else and being fair and right. How are you going to do this in business with this guy? Worse than that, how are you going to do this in marriage? Where you love Jesus and she or he does not. And at first, they're kind of accepting of that. That's fine. That's your belief. Go ahead. But over time, they get upset with you because you go to the women's Bible studies and you do things for the Lord and for yourself and you love the people of the Lord and, and he can't figure these things out and he, he gets upset because you're not there tending to all his needs and all these things. The fundamental issue isn't that um, you know he's just a selfish guy or whatever. He doesn't see any value in these things that you do and wishes that maybe you would cut back and eventually stop. He has a completely different view of how all things operate, function, and, and it's different than yours, or vice versa. How, how do you, you know, I, I've counseled people who were un, one unbeliever and a believer who were wanting to get married, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know what the scripture says? In some ways, it's not just some kind of prohibition or law, like, oh, unbeliever, you know, believers can't marry, uh, unbelievers and believers can't be. It's not law in that sense, it's not Old Testament law. It is a very foolish thing to even entertain the idea because what you're doing, the Lord is so wise and so smart, he's trying to protect you because he understands what it's going to be like to be in a lifelong marital relationship with somebody who is opposing you on all the things that matter most. That's wisdom. We don't look at that as some kind of restrictive law. It's wise. It's proverbial wisdom. If you join in something like that, it is going to be very, very hard. Now, I will admit there have been some instances where some of those marriages have worked out pretty well. But, okay, because one out of a hundred works out, let's go for it? <laughs> I'm not a gambler. When I go to Black Oak, I drop a dollar in a machine and I lose and I go, I'm out of here. I'm that cheap. Actually, it's not cheap. I just don't like, I mean, I may as well burn my money right? I'd rather burn it on something that I can ride around and break my ribs on, <laughs> which is equally dumb. 
we are, are foreigners to fellow men because we have been born from above. We are not like the world any longer. We're in it, but we're not of its substance. If we were, the world would absolutely love us and leave us alone. But it's always on us. It's trying to destroy us. Why? Because we're so different and we don't go along with it. And we don't do that because we think we're better than others or anything like that. There's none of that in me. I've been changed by the Holy Spirit. I can't help myself. I love people in the world. I do. But I don't agree with them on things. Why? <laughs> Why should believers avoid yoking themselves with unbelievers or to unbelievers in these various partnerships? Well, there's a ton of reasons, but one really stands out here, and it's what Paul is saying. It's because unbelievers tend to be bad company for us. We've got a different set of beliefs and a different lifestyle and all this. They tend to be bad company. And what does Paul say bad company does? It ruins good morals. Being yoked in business or marriage or friendship or fellowship, you really can't even do that in fellowship because fellowship's a Christian-only thing. But to be yoked to, to unbelievers in any of those ways, being that close to an unbeliever is not going to help your morality. It's going to impact it. It's going to pressure you to forsake it and to engage in the things that they cherish and love, whatever they may be. Don't think that unbelievers don't have morals. They have their own set of morals. And they, generally speaking, don't square with how God defines what morality is. Today, the height of morality in culture is to not think or be indifferent toward or to not say anything toward those who think they are an Apache helicopter. With this whole gender thing. The height of morality in our culture is people's feelings. If you attack the feelings, you are the most immoral person ever. And facts don't care about your feelings. We just don't agree with it. You, if you join in something like that, it, it's going to be trouble for you, bad company, and that ruins good morals. Now, do not misunderstand Paul's point or what I'm saying. We can and should remain connected to unbelievers, especially when they're family members, because that's sometimes what happens. What are you saying, Phil? I, I am, in a sense, yoked with some unbelievers under my roof. How, do I kick them out? Well. I guess. Well, what sense would that make? Sometimes the unbelievers are 12 years old. Jimmy hit the road. Thanks, Dad. I'll go sleep in the park across the street with everyone else. That's my new thing. You don't kick them out. You don't throw them out. You're supposed to have some kind of relationship with unbelievers. How else are you going to minister the gospel to them? How else are you going to speak the truth in love? But you need to be discerning and cautious in these relationships because bad company ruins good morals. We need to remember that every type of unbeliever, whether it be a family member or non-family member, they're all part of our mission field. We want to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want to bind them up with rules. We want them to know the freedom and love of God in Christ. These relationships, there should be relationships there. There doesn't have to be partnership. There should be relationship. And these relationships should be what I call gospel intentional. I'm in relationship with whether it be unbelieving children or unbelieving cousins or all these things. Yes, there's a blood connection, their family. But I need to be gospel 
intentional with them. I want to see them one to Christ because I want them to have the joy of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord and that kind of deep, intimate connection with them, not because I want them to follow a bunch of rules or anything like that. We are not to avoid unbelievers altogether, but to avoid yoking ourselves to them in various partnerships. That is unwise to do that or to even consider that. And, and, and here's, here's where it gets nuts. Are you ready? This is where you're going to say, oh my goodness, because right now our entire mindset is focused on the outside world and unbelievers, right? This is how we think about this, yoking and all that. We don't do it with those outside of the body. We don't do it. This is the way we think. And yet the same rule applies to those who claim to be Christian but do not live like Christians. What, 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 what is Paul saying here? That bad company is in the church and out of the church. And sometimes it names the name of Christ. Sometimes it's quote-unquote Christians that are the bad company. Huh? Yeah. Totally. The worst company. Like the young man in chapter 5, amen, who professes Christ and does all these other things. Do not hang out with someone like that from the outside world. No, that's not the instruction. It's one like that who names Christ, who calls himself a brother. That's the person that we shouldn't have company with just as we shouldn't have company with those in the world to the point of partnership and all that, or we just need to be really careful with it. So the same rule applies to Christians and non-Christians. There's always been a variety of, of counterfeits in the visible church, the church that gathers on Sundays or Saturdays. And some of these counterfeits, they try to spread bad orthodoxy, bad beliefs, right? You know, you're not going to be able to get through your whole journey of faith and attending a church, even this church, without finding someone in it that you start interacting with and you realize they've got some really funky beliefs. And you're sitting there going, this isn't even biblical. It happens. And sometimes those people aren't docile. They want to perpetuate or spread those beliefs in that body. Right? They, they want you to believe that that the culture's definition of marriage is the proper definition, and that's anything goes. I remember when, when all of this talk about um, homosexual marriage came out years ago during the Obama administration. I remember all of a sudden, and, and this was like, I guess I was at Big Valley at the time, but I remember there were all these people around me that I, was, that I knew in, in, in certain ministries and they were completely supportive of that ruling by the Supreme Court in the, in the redefining of marriage. And I'm sitting here going, I would have never, ever known that about this guy right here who I've served with for six years if it hadn't been for that ruling and the situation. It was just mind-blowing to find out that people around me had an unbiblical, unorthodox view of marriage this whole time. How would you even ever know that? All of a sudden, something like that brings it out, and you're like, good Lord, I had no idea. So there are some counterfeits in the church, in the visible church, that, 
They try to spread bad orthodoxy, bad beliefs, false doctrines, distorted, twisted doctrines. And this, of course, paved the way for the first eight ecumenical council meetings of the early church. After the first meeting, the uh, apostles, uh, or at the first meeting, I should say, the very first one, I think there's seven, historically speaking, but I count eight because there's actually one in the book of Acts in chapter 15. This is what an ecumenical meeting is, is when all the leaders of the church come together to discuss an issue and to carve out proper belief or proper doctrine because there's some in the church who aren't doing that. So they feel the need to come together and make a ruling. And this happened in Acts 15, and the issue had to do with these people called Judaizers who believed that the, the way that a person was justified was through faith and circumcision. So they added a work to faith. And we know Christian doctrine clearly says it's by faith that we're justified. No works. But they were going around spreading this error. That's a false doctrine to say that we're justified by anything other than faith alone. And they were doing it. And now the church has to convene and come together and, and, have, and, and, and come up with a, a statement to send out to Gentiles who are being falsely taught. Acts 15, you know, Paul spoke up at that one, Peter too. And at the second meeting, which is, we know as the first council of Nicaea, 325 AD, the bishops, including Athanasius, confronted a guy named Arius who denied the deity of Christ. This happened, or actually, and then, and then after that, between 381 and 787 AD, after the death of Christ, there were six more of these ecumenical meetings. Point being, there's always been those within the visible church that are counterfeit and who are trying to spread bad theology or false doctrine. Always. It's always been there. It's a terrible thing, but it's also a beautiful thing in a way because God works through it to lay out what we're to believe through the response of godly men and women. We lay out these doctrinal statements and things, and some people say, I don't like any of those. Gosh, without those, sometimes we wouldn't even understand some of the scriptures. And so they put these things together in defense of Christian biblical truth. And so there's a positive side to those who spread these things, that the church comes together and writes out these statements like the Nicene Creed, right? Which is amazing. It affirms the deity of Christ. So you have all these ecumenical meetings. Why do they exist? Because of counterfeits who spread bad orthodoxy in the visible church. There are other counterfeits who try to spread bad orthopraxy, wrong living. They, most of the time, affirm the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines of Christianity, you know, the deity of Christ and these sorts of things, justification by faith alone, we're saved by grace alone, these things. They, they tend to affirm these things, but they don't live the doctrines of Christianity. They will tell you they believe them, but those doctrines have no impact on their life and they don't live them. They are hearers of the word, not doers of the word, James 122. There are things they know they should do according to Scripture, and yet they refuse to do them. Well, the Scripture clearly lays out this about my life, and they look at that and give it a hearty amen and do the opposite. And when confronted regarding their sinful, disobedient behavior, they either deny dilute or deflect. 
They even attempt to justify their disobedience at times. You remember the old saying, the devil made me do it? Well, today, people don't usually use that expression anymore, but they'll say, because of how I was raised or because of what I went through or because of what that guy is doing or because of what he said, they're trying to justify their behavior deflecting to something else when ultimately you are culpable, you are responsible for your behavior, no matter what anyone else does. You see, when we stand before the Lord in judgment, we don't get to go, Jimmy, well, I'll deal with him, but I'm dealing with you. Now, these folks who obviously, these counterfeits in the visible church who try to spread bad orthodoxy and these counterfeits who try to spread bad orthopraxy living all together, no matter what, they're all bad company. And we need to watch out for them. They twist reality. They stir up dissensions among brothers, especially those who, I mean, you're told in Scripture to be unified with other believers. You believe this, and yet you seek to disunify by stirring up trouble between them. That's an example of bad orthopraxy not living out. Another example would be in the Lord's Prayer where it says we are to forgive one another. If you choose not to forgive, bad orthopraxy. How could we possibly claim to be forgiven by the Lord while going around and not forgiving others who have wronged us or not making our apologies to those we've wronged? That's bad orthopraxy. At that point, we become bad company, corrupting. Sometimes they use manipulation to to gain supporters. I've, I know I've done this in the past, especially when I was an unbeliever. I could be dead wrong about something and then try to get six people to support me. Ultimately, they turn one brother or sister against another, causing these divisions. Knowing these threats, knowing these very real present dangers, Knowing that there are counterfeits, theological counterfeits, and just Christian counterfeits who don't live out the very truths they affirm or sit and love to listen to, knowing these dangers, knowing these threats, we should not be quick to yoke ourselves to any person simply because they say they are Christian and attend worship services. Right? Let's go all in with that guy. He's been here two weeks in a row don't even know him. He professes Christ. He has a good theology. You've come to find that out at Starbucks when not realizing it was the caffeine that was stimulating you, not the conversation with him. <laughs> oh, yeah, this guy makes sense. <laughs> Drink a venti, that's what happens to me. <laughs> it takes time to figure out if a person is legit. Amen? Amen? Christian girls, I met him. He's wonderful. I want to marry him. You met him last week. What are you talking about? You don't even know this guy. This is common. They feel as if they'll never have another shot at it, so they pick the first one that comes down the pike. Oh, he says he loves Jesus. Yeah. 
His name's E-40. <laughs> you haven't heard the lyrics to his songs? It takes time to figure out if a person is legit. You have to watch their life and doctrine closely to determine if indeed they are the genuine article. 1 Timothy 4.16. Sometimes it takes years to figure these things out. Depending on how much interaction you have with someone. If it's just every Sunday, it's going to take a while. And at Sunday, people tend to put on their very best, not just their clothing, but their best attitude and their, their best Christianity. I'm a super Christian on Sunday. Monday, I am a heathen. Right? People put on a show when they come down here sometimes. Is that the best evidence for how they actually are? You got to watch their life and doctrine closely to determine if they're the genuine article. They will either prove to be real by demonstrating good orthodoxy, proper beliefs, and good orthopraxy, the combination of both, proper living, or they will prove to be counterfeit. If they are constantly sinning, and, and bear in mind that the sin doesn't have to be something just blatant and, and maybe we would perceive as more disgusting, like sexual immorality, it doesn't have to be something like that. It could be consistent anger. It could be consistent bitterness. It could be consistent envy. It could be slander, a pattern of slander, talking about others behind their backs. It could be gossip. And when these things, which aren't sexual immorality, and we deem to not be as serious, but they're insanely serious, they're just as sinful, when these things are coupled with a lack of transparency, almost no confession, and zero repentance usually, that person appears to be either extremely immature or a flat-out uh, total and absolute counterfeit. How should we respond to this bad company? Well, our initial response is supposed to be gentle correction. Galatians 6.1, 2 Timothy 2.24, that when we start to get close to somebody, and we begin to see their life actually how it is. And there's things that are just there. And, and, and it's, it's not that, you know, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I started getting close to, to, to Fred and I see sin in his life. He's a Christian saved by grace. You'll see it on occasion. But if it's there all the time, like if he were at the running iron every night getting bombed and taking women home, there's a problem. I think the main determining factor is whether this person is confessional and repentant and sorrowful and contrite over their sin or not. Unbelievers aren't sorrowful. They're sorrowful when they get caught, not because they do terrible things. The believer gets wrapped up in something, which is easy for us to do. The right response is brokenness when they realize it and humility and sorrow in Psalm 51. Now, if we correct in love at first, that initial thing doesn't work, then that's, if that's not happening, then church discipline, according to Matthew 18, 15 to 20, that's an order. That's something that we have to follow. If he or she still refuses to repent, they, I think, pretty much prove to be a counterfeit and should be treated as an unbeliever, as the text says. Excommunication is the final step. It is the total removal of bad company from the congregation. Why? Because bad company corrupts, ruins others. 
if you don't remove it from the congregation, others will be deceived and poisoned. And these folks, it's, it's a tragedy. It's such a sad thing. And they are essentially dismissed in love with the guarantee of restoration if they will repent of their bad beliefs, bad behavior, sinfulness, and what have you. There is hope at the end of that. You know that you can come back if you come to your senses. Understand something here. Bad company ruining good morals in the church is so serious. Why is that? Because the church is to be holy like its Lord and head, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16. This is something that I think a great many Christians today have no concept of, that the church is to be holy. Let me tell you what the church is not. The church is not a hospital for sinners. It is not, and I'm tired of hearing people say that. And it's also not a museum for saints. It is the household of God. Ephesians 2.19. It is the bride of Christ. Revelation 21.9. It is to be pure. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Not only when the church is gathered, it is to be pure, but equally so when the church is scattered. When you are out living your daily life, the purity that you practice within this context is to be practiced there at all times. How can we maintain this purity while being in close proximity to bad company? It ruins good morals. How are you going to keep your purity together? If you're hanging out with people that have no concept of it and everything they display is impure or almost everything. How? If good morals go, purity goes. The two are inseparably linked. Good morals produce purity. Bad morals produce impurity. Another way to look at what Paul is teaching here is that we become what we hang out with. You understand? If you hang out with bad company, what do you become? Bad company. When I was a, a junior high pastor, I, I, I never tried to be legalistic with the kids and pressure them into purity during Sadie Hawkins and all that bull. Purity's good for kids, I get it, but they're sinners and they need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know that there's forgiveness and restoration in Jesus because kids are going to sin. Don't act like they won't and try to get them not to. They will and they'll be defeated. Teach them the gospel that there is an answer to their sin. But I remember the students that I was ministering to had a wide range of friends. The majority of them went to public school and you know if you, if you analyzed 100% of their friends, 95% were unbelievers. And I said, you need to find a way to reverse that because that's way too much bad influence. You've got way too much bad company in your life. If you're going to have 50 unbelieving bad company friends, you need to have 100 good company Christian friends that are living, trying to live out the faith. You've got to counter it. 
You can't just have all of this, these, be surrounded by all this bad company. Certainly you can't be naive, naive and expect to survive that without having your own purity attacked and undermined, your own morals done away with. What does Paul say? Do not be deceived. Sometimes we can be deceived into thinking that we're strong enough to hang out with all this bad company all the time and hold the line. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. It's a deception to think that you can stand up to it. That's what he's saying. We become what we hang out with. With that being said, we should choose our company wisely. Amen? And this is why new Christians tend to break away from the world around them right after their conversion. Have you seen that? Did you experience that when you first got saved? Man, it was almost like the world didn't exist. See, new Christians seem to understand that if they keep company with robbers, it's likely that they will keep robbing. Or with dopers, they'll keep doping. Or with carousers, they'll keep carousing. Or with those uh, people who commit lewd, you know, sexual immorality, they're going around and, and womanizing or whatever, they think that if I hang around with that, I'll keep doing that. They seem to understand this instinctually now as a new creation. And so they make a break from the world around them. Their friends are like, I haven't seen you in six months. Where have you been? I've been hiding on an island. <laughs> One of the first things that a new Christian sees is that the company he's been, he's been keeping all this time is no good and needs to be changed immediately. I can't keep hanging out with these guys. I can't keep going out with these gals. Oh, we don't have the same things in common any longer. We discussed this in our Sunday school earlier. We're just, it's not we're better. It doesn't have anything to do with it. We're just different. And so this new convert he realizes this i can't keep hanging out with these people i can't keep watching those dvds i can't there's things that i can't keep doing because they're going to corrupt my beliefs and corrupt my practice they're going to corrupt the way i'm trying to live for christ they're going to impact my purity impact my holiness i know this i'm weak and so he he makes a break and he begins to hang around the church like a regenerated stalker it's just like, who's that guy over there in the corner? He's like, what's up? Who are you? New Christian. Okay. All right. Yeah. Have a good day. It's weird. They lurk. They don't know what to do. They haven't spent their life in the church. They're just there, and they're, they, they're happy about it because it's a different environment. People are lifting their hands in worship, and they thought that was stupid at one time, and now they're like, Oh, praise him. Oh, praise Am I stupid? No, I'm not. And then they're crying. Oh, you know. It's just a different thing. They're like a stalker. They're there to look for like-minded brothers and sisters to befriend, to associate with, to start over with. And this kind of guy, he's going to join a Bible study. He's going to nail down a place to serve the body of Christ. It's a, it is a dramatic life change. The man who never stepped foot in the church never wants to step foot outside of it again. I'm describing me. And if he finds bad company in the church, 
He's going to call it out to the best of his ability. And if the person doesn't respond the way they should, being confessional and repentant and sorrowful for their sin, if they don't, if they don't best respond biblically, th this guy, he's not going to stay close to them because he doesn't want his own morals ruined. He's going to say, I love that person, but there's something wrong. And when I'm with him or her, it's not good. And it has a very negative effect on me. And I've been wondering why they even come down here every week. Now, some might say, well, you're judging them. Well, we're supposed to judge matters within the church. And if this person, he might be new, but maybe he knows that he needs to start praying for that new friend who is off. He might even go to leadership because he doesn't understand how things work and say, there's something wrong with Fred and my heart grieves for him and I was hanging out with him, but I really can't because there's so much sin and he won't own it and it's just, it's impacting me spiritually and, you know, can, can maybe we go together and talk to him? Well, he's probably going to get offended. Well, okay, but I think he's worth it. See, the Corinthians did the opposite in every way. Nah, they, 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 didn't, they didn't do anything like what we're talking about here. <laughs> they just kept going and kept company with bad company. And as a result, their doctrines and their morality was going down the tubes. That's why Paul says, don't be deceived. Like he's saying, you are deceived. You think that you can double dip? You think that you can continue on in close relationship with those who hate Christ and not have it have an impact on you? You think that you can go down to the Agora and sit under that teaching and survive it? This church is 18 months old. Pretty hard for a young church like that to stand up to this nasty world that wants to destroy us spiritually. Now, yeah, they were doing the opposite. Let's move to our fourth and final point. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for keeping bad company and letting it twist their views of resurrection. Verse 34. What does he say? Look at this. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Oh, man. The command to wake up from your drunken stupor and to stop sinning caps Paul's argument in this section. <clears throat> he uses a, a single Greek verb. It's eknepho in the first part of his rebuke here. It, it means when he says, wake up from your drunken stupor, it, he's using this Greek verb. It, the whole sentence there is wrapped up in this one word. He used one word that conveys that meaning. Ultimately, what it means is you need to wake up and become sober-minded. Your thinking is like a drunk person. You're not thinking clearly. You're not seeing reality the way that you need to. Any of us who've ever drinking a little too much, we know. Not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying it's part of my past, but you understand. You get a few too many, all of a sudden it's like, you don't see things right at all. I used to start saying, you know, when I was drinking too much back in my, my dumbball days, was like, I love you, man. 
this guy's been saying this all night. It's because he's had 29 Coors banquets. Did he say, I love you, man, before he had one beer? No. He gets weird when he drinks too much. It's not clear thinking. You can't think clearly and straightly when you're inebriated. And he's treating them as if they're in a drunken stupor, even though they haven't had a lick of alcohol here. They're acting drunk in their thinking. You need to become sober-minded. I like how the NTFE, the New Testament, for everyone, not the best translation in the world, but it does put that same statement really cool. It says, sober up, straighten up, and stop sinning. That does a pretty good job of capturing what Paul is saying. The NIV, which is far more common in a, a reliable paraphrase, I would say, it provides an excellent rendering as well. It says, come back to your senses as you ought to and stop sinning. That's good. According to Garland, one of my favorite commentarians in 1 Corinthians, he says the drunken stupor, the, the use of that there, it refers to a benighted worldliness and a lack of spiritual awareness. This could be true. Ultimately, the, the root of their problem is their ignorance of God. And that's what MacArthur was hinting at in the beginning of his commentary. When you don't understand doctrine right and you don't understand God right, because doctrine is what lays out who God is and what he's done, when you don't understand those things right, it's going to lead to all kinds of crazy living. And that's exactly what Garland is saying. The root of the problem is their ignorance of God. And that is the root of all of our problems, not understanding our Creator, not even knowing our Creator, thinking that we came from a blob. We, th this is, it, it is the, the height of ignorance and it is the pervasive ignorance of all people that they just don't even know. They don't know why they exist. They don't know there's a creator who created them for a purpose. Now Paul does not itemize all the things about God that these Corinthians do not know, but since he's been talking primarily about the resurrection of believers, I think it's safe to assume that that's the main doctrine they needed to wake up to and re-embrace as orthodoxy, right? That's the issue here in chapter 15. He calls their distorted view of resurrection sinning. Now, we don't typically think of, of it like that. We don't typically think of, of a misunderstanding of, of a doctrine or a deliberate distortion of a doctrine or a rejection of a doctrine. We don't typically think of that as, as sinful, but Paul says it is. And so it's twisting biblical doctrine, right? These doctrines are the revelation of God. They are Scripture. Anyone who adds to or subtracts from Scripture sins and will come under judgment. Amen? Deuteronomy 4.2, Proverbs 30, verse 6. And you know back at the end of Revelation 22, 18 to 19, do not add to or subtract from these words, or the curses of this book will come upon you. So it is sinful to deny biblical doctrine, to twist biblical doctrine. The Corinthians, in their handling of the doctrine of resurrection, are sinning. In a similar vein, Jesus accused the Sadducees of being deceived and knowing neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why? Because they denied the resurrection. Mark 12, 24. 
Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you'd better wake up from your drunken theological, your doctrinal stupor and stop sinning with the doctrine of resurrection. That's what he's saying. In the second half of verse 34, he literally blasts the Corinthians' company, the local philosophers, those they were hanging out with, that bad company. He says, they have no knowledge of God. A question arises here. Why would the Corinthians or any Christian put themselves before anyone, any kind of philosophers or teachers or preachers, who literally have no knowledge of God? What would be attractional with us to them? Why would we be attracted to that and want to go and listen to that? That's what he's saying. You have, I've preached in your church. Peter preaches in your church. Apollos preaches in your church. They all preach the word, unvarnished, straightforward. What would possess you to even desire to go down there and listen to such people who do not have any knowledge of God? And the idea here is it's like an empty tank. There's no knowledge of God. It's not 1% knowledge of God. It's not half a percent knowledge of God. These philosophers know nothing about God, and they prove it through what they say. There's no resurrection. When you say that, you know nothing about God because God is the God of resurrection. Why would you even go down and give them the time of day? just sitting in their audience, even if you don't take their teachings back to the church with you or believe what they're saying, just sitting in their audience boosts their numbers. You're just one person that was counted among the, all those, the congregation. You were the 174th person there. Why would you even be part of that role? They have no knowledge of God. And I, I thought to myself, are believers really that, you know, dumb? Are believers really dumb enough to, to, to go and, you know, and it, let's just hang out with these people and let's do this? And it, it's, it's not a matter of intelligence or aptitude. The reason why they subject themselves to such false teachers is because they are ignorant of the Scripture. They do not have a basis of sound doctrine. If they had a basis of sound doctrine, they, A, wouldn't subject themselves to that kind of teaching, or maybe, B, wouldn't walk away with it and would refute it right there as they sit in their mind and walk away and then tell others what that guy said was wrong. The Corinthians are doing the opposite. They're sitting under it and then taking it back to the church and saying, listen to these ideas. You see, if a believer is informed and they, they know the word, they don't have to be an expert. They've got to know something here. If they're scripturally informed, if they're, they need to be kind of like a Berean in that sense, Acts 17, 11. Believers who know the word are better able to sniff out errors. They will not remain under those who contradict scripture and twist doctrine. They can sense when something is off. Their spirit is uncomfortable in those settings. When asked if Roman Catholics can be saved, R.C. Sproul said, sure, if the gospel is being preached in their parish, but they won't stay there for long if they read and study their Bibles. Because the minute they start studying the word for themselves, they're going to start hearing a lot of stuff coming from the front that they can't find in here. And they're going to start saying, um, we do a lot of things here in our parish that 
I can't find. I'm not sure what's going on there. Well, you need these extra writings or whatever. I say this would be equally true of Pentecostals. Informed and spiritually discerning believers are not going to remain in any kind of environment like that when the truth is constantly added to or subtracted from. They're not going to tolerate those attacks on God's word. Some of the Corinthians, however, were perfectly fine with keeping company with real enemies of the truth, those philosophers. And this just baffled Paul. It's like he's saying, get out of there. Those people have no knowledge of God. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves for keeping company with such deceivers and ruiners of good doctrine and good morals, good orthodoxy, good orthopraxy. Shame on you. What are you doing? You shouldn't be there. J. Max paraphrase of Paul's words in verse 34 are really good. He wrote, those of you, this is as if Paul is saying this, those of you who believe in the resurrection know better, and you should be leading those who do not believe in the resurrection into a true knowledge of God rather than allowing their heresy and their immorality to mislead and corrupt you. You know, it was the calling and responsibility of that church to engage the culture with the gospel, the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as Paul had done in their hometown in Corinth 18 months earlier. They had the same mission as him, take the gospel out. They were supposed to take the gospel out to the philosophers, like Paul did at Mars Hill, Acts 16, 16 to 34. Instead, they were taking philosophies from the philosophers and bringing them back to the church twisted their view of resurrection. It earned them a world-class rebuke from Paul right here in verse 34. The warning is clear, beloved. We are not to keep company with those who ruin good morals, whether they be inside the visible church or outside the visible church. This kind of association is dangerous we can be deceived and become like them. Evil has a way of multiplying. The last thing believers should be doing is spreading evil. Now that we, I mean, we literally know what bad company is, right? Or what it does, it ruins good morals. Let's ask this question as we tie things together. What is the opposite of that? What is good company? Well, you might say to yourself, because you're following basic logic, well, it'd be the opposite. It doesn't ruin good morals. Yeah, that's a good answer. I would say it's this. Good company is this. It is brothers and sisters who affirm biblical historical orthodoxy, our doctrines, who obey the Lord and practice biblical orthopraxy. In other words, they walk in the Spirit. They bear the fruit of the Spirit. They humbly confess and repent when they stumble in sin. That, my friends, is good company. Not perfect company, but it's good company. I'll end with a set of questions. First, what kind of company are we keeping? Who do we hang out with? What do we do when we hang out with them? What is our practice? What's it like when we hang out with people? What do we engage in? Okay? What kind of company are we keeping? And number two, what kind of company are we 
to others. Are we good company? Do we practice biblical morality? Do we promote godliness? Do we correct in love when necessary? Do we discuss truth? Do we share Christ? Do we encourage and build one another up? 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Or maybe are we bad company? You see, you, you don't, we don't have to be ruinous of good morals to be bad company. By definition, that's what Paul calls bad company in this text. But there are other ways to be bad company. We can be indifferent to what we hear and see and let ungodly speech and conduct among those who name Christ slide instead of challenging it. That makes us bad company. We're not helping this brother or sister and we're sitting there indifferently and not responding to what they're saying and doing when we should in love. We can just let it slide. We can be bad company by leaving Christ out of our social engagements. We can be like the Corinthians and abuse our liberty by causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble or through overindulgence of things that we shouldn't overindulge in. That makes us bad company. We are setting a bad example for those around us if we're drinking too much or heavily. And I say sometimes in front of children if you're drinking at all. So you, you don't have to do these explicit crazy things and just be so ruinous of someone's morals to be bad company. There's a million ways to be bad company. That's something we have to watch out for. And there's a lot of ways. So ask yourself, what kind of company do I have? What kind of company am I to others? What is the goal? It is to be good company, right? It is to be good company. Would we all agree that we fall short of that? Huh. You kidding me? If you bring out the scales and weigh we've been good company or bad company, I don't think the good is just, you know, is so heavy because we've been such great company. I think it's more like this. It should go. So we've learned today what it looks like. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, let's pursue being and becoming good company to those around us. And, and deal with the bad company. And it can begin by correcting it in love if we need to. But it might end up in not having an association with that person because they're just too corruptive. And it's hard to believe that you could even do that in the church. But that's what church discipline is for. We don't just alienate people in the church and let them be by themselves like the regenerated stalker in the corner. <laughs> you find bad people in the church, you don't want to just distance yourself from them. You want to challenge them so, right, so maybe they can repent and confess and move forward. And if that doesn't work and you've got to move through the process of discipline, it's for their good, even though it's hard. <laughs>